Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Coer Somerville. How are you this morning? Gospel people, yes. That's great. Well, good morning. My name is Matt Harris. I'm so excited and thrilled to be here with you this morning, worshiping. Thank you, Pastor Mike, for leading us. Um, I served with Mike and with Jeremy in Coa Brookline for quite a few years, and it's a little bit like getting the band back together. And that's fun, huh? Yes. Um, anyways, I'm just so glad to be here. Um, I just want to pray and... Uh, and invite the Lord to, to speak through me to, so that my words are not mine, but his. So if you would uh, join me, Heavenly Father, Lord, Father, you are so great. You are so worthy to be worshipped. Oh, Lord, the things you do, the, the blessings you've poured upon us, are, we can't even count them. We don't even know sometimes when they're happening, and we know we don't deserve them because we are sinners. But Father God, you saw... You saw what you wanted to see in us and you drew us out of the pit and you sent your son, Jesus, Lord, to die on our behalf. Father, your gospel is true. Your gospel is life-giving, life-changing, and you are beautiful. Father, I ask, Father, that you would remove me from this place and let your word shine through. Let the word of the Lord uh, come through and the gospel be declared in such a way that we can we can know you more, we can love you more, and we can be transformed more into more and more like your son Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So this morning I am continuing, I believe, the series on the Apostles' Creed. And I am going to be talking about the part, the, towards the beginning, about the Incarnation. I'm going to read the Apostles' Creed quickly. You don't have to read it with me. I'm sure you're familiar with it. The Apostles' Creed reads, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose Again, ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So, when I was asked to preach on the Incarnation, the thing I thought about instantly was... 
I'm doing a Christmas sermon, right? When we think of the incarnation, we think of a little baby born in a manger. I thought maybe Mike was going to lead us in a little town of Bethlehem, perhaps. But maybe is that your last song? I don't know. Okay. Um, but he was... The incarnation is spoken of in the creed that we just read. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll preach on the second chapter of Luke. And this is a very familiar chapter to all of us. It is the Christmas story in many regards. You'll remember the angels appeared to the shepherds and said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now, in the Harris family, we had a Christmas tradition. Yes, we would have great food, a lot of coffee. We would open presents. But before we did the presents, and maybe right after the coffee, we would always sit down and read Luke chapter 2. It reminded us of the reason we were gathering and the reason we were celebrating it. Now, Luke chapter 2 is much more of a, a historical rendition. It's a historical story of the incarnation. It describes the political, the cultural, and the supernatural events of that historic event. But after getting over my desire to return to the memories of a snowy Christmas, and in the words of Theodore Geisel, it came with ribbons, it came with tags, it came without packages, boxes, or bags. Anyone remember where that's from? Yeah? Green guy? Yeah. Okay. I decided to settle in on a little bit more theological passage for the Incarnation, and that's why we're in Philippians 2 today. I'm going to start on Philippians 2, verses 5 through 7. Yes, I am skipping 3 and 4, but I'm going to come back to them towards the end of my message. So the Apostles' Creed says that we believe that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, not by Joseph, not by a man. Our main verse in Philippians says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. It says he was in the form of God. Even though God, he came in the flesh. It says he, was em he emptied himself. It became a servant, born in the likeness of man. What a sacrificial and personal act from our God. That he, that he came, he was God, he was holy and righteous. And he immersed himself in the sinful bath of our humanity. But even though he was immersed in that sin, he didn't absorb it. Now, I don't think a Koa sermon would really be recognizable if it didn't have a quote from Okay, I'm going to, let's, let's put this out to you. Who do Koa pastors quote from most of the time? Any ideas? Anybody? C.S. Lewis, okay. Yes. One more. I got one more in mind. Yes, Levi. Yes. The guy I'm thinking about is John Piper. 
Yes, another one. But so I'm going to try to double down. I'm going to give you a quote that John Piper made of C.S. Lewis, if that's okay. All right. Now, John Piper was responding to a question about the difference between the word begotten and made. This was related to the use of the language, his only begotten son. Now, that term is not in the Apostles' Creed. It is in the Nicene Creed. But I think we've heard it. You see, in the fourth century, there was a group called the Arians. And they argued that Jesus Christ was created. In essence, he was made. And therefore, he was not God. Here's what John Piper said about it, quoting C.S. Lewis. John Piper said, Now, C.S. Lewis was really criticized for trying to make things understandable for ordinary people. That's me. But most of us bless him for it, right? And here's what he wrote in Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis wrote, writes, When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets a man. A beaver begets a beaver. A bird begets an egg, which turns into a bird. But when you make, you make something that is different than yourself. A bird makes a nest. A beaver makes a dam. And a man makes a wireless set. Well, a wireless set is like an original radio. Remember, C.S. Lewis was back in World War I time frame, so that's a... That's what he probably thought. Anyways, that's an essential part of what the doctrine intends to preserve. The Son is not a creation. He's not made. He is not different, and He is of the very same essence because He was begotten by God. D. James Kennedy wrote a series called Why I Believe. And I looked through that to get some ideas for this presentation. In his section, where he talks about the virgin birth, he talks about science. I'm a, I'm a bit of a geek. I'm a technical guy, a mechanical guy. And I kind of connected with this. Newton's third law says, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Now, how does that apply? Every one of us has sinned and none of our, us are righteous. Now, you just have to look at the newspapers and the websites to see the daily sinfulness of man. But the sin, is only re, it only reinforces Genesis 3 where we learned about the fall of man, right? Man sinned and was cast out of the garden. This sin stains every man ever born. Yet, Jesus was without sin. How can that be? Somehow, out of the mud of man's comprehensive, complete, everywhere sin grew a pristine, perfect white lily. Now, if every effect has an adequate cause and every man is sinful, how can this be? What caused Jesus to be without sin? Remember, a man begets a man and a beaver begets a beaver. Jesus wasn't begat from man. He didn't inherit the venom of sin that was, has poisoned the human race. The uniqueness of this sinless Savior, who would be the forgiver of man's sin, demanded a unique birth. 
It also demanded a unique death. In Philippians 2.8, it says, He being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Not only did he submit willingly to death on a cross, but three days later, he rose from the dead. Now, this is objective, real, and very public documented by religious and non-religious authorities and witnesses. Check this out. In the four Gospels, they wrote about the death and the resurrection. And many, many of the eyewitnesses to the death and the resurrection were still alive when the Gospels were written. And if it hadn't happened, they could have disputed it. Check this out. Many of the eyewitnesses to that resurrection were killed and went to their death claiming it was true. Now, some would claim that the books in the gospel are written really with kind of symbolism and metaphors. And there, is, there are books in the gospel that are symbolic, and metaphorical, and, and, and theatrical, and dramatic, and poetic, right? But... The Apostle John wrote five of the books in the New Testament. And he knew the difference between symbol and metaphor. Four of the books, which is the book of John and three epistles, they were historical and factual and directive. And then he wrote a fifth book, Revelation. This book is symbolic and metaphorical. So John knew the difference. So he would not have interspersed symbology and metaphor into the Gospel of John, which depicts the death and resurrection. Here's another point. The tomb that Jesus was laid in was sealed and guarded by professional Roman guards, who, by the way, if they made any mistakes in their duty, not only them, but their entire battalion would be executed. So they were on guard, awake, and attentive. And Jesus himself predicted his death by crucifixion and his resurrection on the third day. And that this would be a sign that vindicated who he was. So all the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead is also evidence of his virgin birth. This is because sin must be paid for by a sinless sacrifice. We've learned that from the Old Testament as well. This is also because there were no sinless men there was no candidates to be the sinless sacrifice. And there needed to be one. So God sent one, his son. And God put his imprimatur or his official certification on the death and resurrection saying, this sacrifice is sufficient. We know that from Paul's writing in Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the, cause, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. And then from Jesus' own words in John 10.17, For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And Jesus also says in Matthew 20.28, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Here's another reason to believe that Jesus was sinless, born of the Father, the Son of God. And that reason is Mary herself. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there at the foot of the cross when he was cruelly executed. It says in John 19, 25 through 27, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. I don't know why there's three Marys together, but there are. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, this is John, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, he said, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Now, to me, there's, this is some of the most emotional and personal passages of the passion. You can ask my wife sitting right there. Hi, Sue. You can ask her, who's the softy and the emotional one in the family? It's not her. It's me. Um, when, I become of a, when I become aware of a story of a child in a, in a, who's suffering, who's struggling, and possibly in a life-threatening situation, I completely lose my composure. Um, you may not remember this because you're all much younger than I am, but the name Jessica McClure is a, is a, was a little girl who in 1987, when she was 18 months old, fell down into a pipe in the earth. It was a well or something. And she fell headfirst down into this pipe. She's 18 months old. The pipe was probably this big around. And she was probably, I'm guessing, 20, 25 feet below the ground. It was on the news. For, she was in the pipe for 56 hours. It took uh, rescuers and first responders and miners 56 hours to get her out. As I recall, they, they tunneled down next to the pipe and they tunneled over and they sent this very small miner guy who had this strange quirk that he could at will dislocate his shoulder. And it took that cramped configuration for him to go in, connect her to a harness, and they pulled her out. I was a basket case for like three days while this was going on. Well, she was successfully rescued. She's alive today, but I was a mess. I'm glad she's doing well. Imagine a, a conversation between a son who is sentenced to death and his mother. Now, not just any death, but by a method of execution invented by the Persians and perfected over 400 years by the Romans, perfected to ensure that it was slow, humiliating, and agonizing. This would be too much for any of us to witness. The mother of Jesus would have done anything to reverse this death sentence, to get her son down off of that cross. But what could she do? Was she powerless? I think it seems like she was, but was she? There was a special, unique option available to Mary at that moment. If she decided to perform this option, it would have put an end to the execution immediately. She could have stopped it in its tracks. With one bold step, she could compel the guards to take Jesus down from the cross, tend to his wounds, 
and restore him to health and extend his life, but end his ministry. But she didn't. She didn't say anything. What was this thing that she could have said to, to, in order to reverse history? Remember, the reason he was executed was because he claimed he was the Son of God. He claimed that his father was God, not Joseph. He claimed that his mother was impregnated by the Holy Spirit when she was overshadowed by that power. Jesus claimed that God was his father, and that is what caused his execution. What if, what if that were a lie? If Mary had been unchaste with Joseph or any other man and gotten pregnant because of that union, she would have to admit her immorality. She could have stepped forth at any time and exclaimed, Stop this horror. I'm ashamed. I confess. I will tell you who his real father is. She didn't do that. No mother to save her reputation would allow her son to be horribly mutilated and killed. Mary could have stopped this, except she knew who his real father was. She knew Jesus' father was God. All right, I'm exhausted. Let's lighten things up a little bit. John the Baptist, very interesting person. Many people I want to meet in heaven. He is one of them. I've mentioned John a few times today, so just to be clear, John the Baptist is not John who wrote the five books of the Bible. And the one, he is the one, and he's not the one that Jesus asked, this is your mother, take care of her. John the Baptist was an itinerant preacher who grew up in a desert wilderness. He wore strange clothes. He ate strange food. He called for people to repent of their sins and to be baptized in preparation for the coming Messiah. John the Baptist was a prophet who proclaimed the end times, baptized those who repented of their sins, confronted the hypocrisy of the religious establishment, and died for his convictions. And as a prophet, he ended the nearly 400 years of prophetic silence and paved the way for the Messiah. One other fact about John the Baptist and Jesus Christ is that they were second cousins because Mary was the younger cousin of Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother. John the Baptist's birth was meticulously recorded in Luke 1. His parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah, were both old and barren. Seems a common theme. God does miraculous things for old and barren couples. An angel of the Lord came to Elizabeth and said that she and her husband would have a child. Now there's a whole sermon in the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah, their faith, their obedience. And I want you to imagine the scene where these two cousins, Mary and Elizabeth, come together. I imagine that Mary, probably in her first trimester, asked Joseph if she could go visit her cousin Elizabeth, who was in her third trimester. Just the fact that her cousin, advanced in years and supposedly barren, was pregnant, drew young Mary to want to go see her. It was a sweet time of family reunion and anticipation for these mothers who were going to bring their sons into the world. And I can envision the short journey to Elizabeth. 
She probably brought along some meager gifts and food for the occasion. And when she arrived at Elizabeth's door, she was greeted by a very pregnant cousin. Here's what the Bible says in Luke 1, 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this that you grant to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So these two women were clearly overjoyed to see each other. Elizabeth said loudly, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Well, Elizabeth, actually, Zechariah had already had an encounter with the angel Gabriel to tell him that they would have a child. Oh, and Zechariah didn't really believe this at first. Remember, old and barren. So the angel made him, his, lost his voice until John the Baptist was born. And then the same angel took off to tell Mary that she was going to have a child. Elizabeth was overjoyed in seeing this visit from Mary. And I'm sure any of you women in this lovely moment of reunion might say something like, to what do I owe this honor? Or, you are so kind to come see me. Or, if you're from the South, well, aren't you a sweet thing, right? But Elizabeth goes cosmic and doctrinal on Mary. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Elizabeth knew that Mary was carrying the long-awaited Messiah in her womb. When these two women embraced in the entryway of the house, she knew that she was perhaps physical inches away from her Lord, the Son of God, the Creator, the Ransom, the Redeemer. She knew. And as they hugged and embraced, someone else knew too. There they were, their bulging bellies pressed against each other. John the Baptist, the unborn, six-month-older, second cousin to Jesus, and the Son of God, both of them floating in their mother's amniotic fluid. Baby John knew that he was in the presence of the divine. It says twice that he leaped in her womb. Now, I want to think that this is a little bit more than, oh, come feel the baby kick. Right? I want to think that as it was proclaimed in Isaiah and Malachi, I want to think that this was the prophet John the Baptist first, very first proclamation of prepare the way of the Lord. Okay, I want to fast forward to part of Jesus' ministry. Jesus was teaching about humility and service. And he said that those who serve others without expecting to be served in response will be repaid at the, la at, the at the resurrection of the just. And at the mention of the resurrection, someone at the table kind of leaned back, feeling a little full of himself and said, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. But Jesus happened to know that this person was actually looking forward to this feast in the kingdom of God because he thought he and only other Jews 
would be there. This man didn't want Gentiles or any lesser folks to spoil the meal. So in reply, Jesus tells the great parable of the, the parable of the great banquet in Luke 14, 15 through 24. Now I won't read that passage, but the parable shows a rich man who went and invited his friends to a great banquet. But his friends came up with all these lame excuses why they couldn't come. Oh, I just bought a new field and I have to go look at it. Or, oh, I just bought some oxen. I have to go look at them. It seems that these people did nothing but buy things and look at them. Right? And I think maybe today it would be, oh, I just bought a 75-inch flat-screen 4K ultra high-D TV and I'm going to go look at that. Well, the rich man's guests were all pretty well off. And it seems that they spent all their time buying things and looking at them instead of gathering together, fellowshipping together, celebrating or mourning together. And it doesn't seem that they got out into the back streets of Judea too much. So in this parable, the rich host sends his servants out to the streets and the back alleys and invites anyone and everyone to the banquet. He wanted the rich and the poor. He wanted the healthy and the sick, the citizens and the foreigners. It teaches me much about being open and inviting to all, not just people like me or in my church, that, which would be my natural inclination. And he looked at, and look at not just his parable, but how Jesus lived his life. He ate with tax collectors. He sought out the remnants of society, reminding us that he came to save the lost. How can I spend time with tax collectors or the equivalent? Who can I invite into my life? These things challenge me. And then when I think of the Samaritan woman at the well, it's not just what he said to her, but that he spoke to her at all because the Samaritans and the Jews did not get along. This just wasn't done. And many times in his life, Jesus hung out with people and spoke to people who were looked down on or stayed away from. I'm not sinless, but Jesus on earth in human flesh came so that we could see a sinless walk. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is essential to the gospel. Let's look further in Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every name knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was exalted, completely exalted by God. And every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We are trained when we see the word therefore, we are to look back to see what it is therefore. So we're going to look back and look in verse 1. We'll look back further. It's going to say, And being found in human form, verse 8, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humility, obedience, death. He suffered perfectly on the cross on our behalf. God was so pleased with His Son and in so many ways that we cannot begin to understand. God understood and Jesus was exalted above all others because of this. Jesus was humble beyond anything you or I could approach. 
He was obedient to the Father, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he asked if this cup could be taken away. And when it wasn't, he proceeded forward towards suffering and death. A death and resurrection so perfect that it not only washed away the sins of those who believe, but crushed the head of the serpent, just as it was told of in Genesis 15. Because of this, Jesus was exalted above all. His exaltation was so great that it encompassed the following. The name of Jesus is above all names. Every name will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The word every in the original Greek means all, every, of every kind, of the highest degree, whole. So make no mistake, every knee and every tongue. To us, I suppose that means that every knee should bow and every tongue confess. So if you have bowed your knee and confessed that Jesus is Lord, your sins have been forgiven. And when you stand before the judgment seat, you will stand on the righteousness of the perfect Son of God who died a death he didn't deserve to pay a debt you couldn't afford. But if you haven't bowed your knee and confessed that Jesus is Lord, you will do that when you stand before the judgment seat. And you will recount directly to Jesus how you failed to perfectly follow every law, failed to resist every temptation, failed to visit everyone who was sick, failed to clothe everyone who was naked, failed to visit those in prison. You failed all these things. So have I. It's too hard to be perfect. It's too hard to live in a sinless way. But that is what God requires. God is holy and he will not be in the presence of sin. That is why you need a Savior. That is why you need the Son of God to take away your sin so that you do not have to pay the price yourself. He already paid it. You just need to bow your knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you are not sure what side of judgment seat you will be directed to, I beg you to speak with someone here today Pastor Ben, Pastor Mike, myself, Jeremy, someone who brought you here. Except, I said I skipped over the first two verses and would address them later, so here it is. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In humility count others more significant than yourselves, even at a great cost to yourself as it was a tremendous cost to Jesus. In the parable about the great banquet, the initial invited guests weren't thinking much about others. They were just, it was important that they thought about themselves and their new field or their new ox or their new flat screen. So Jesus taught us to go out to the disconnected, the disenfranchised and the defenseless and make them part of our lives. That is what he did to us. He went to the sinless, me, to the immoral, me, to the selfish, me, and made me acceptable in the sight of God the Father. We will be exalted if we do this, it says in Luke 18, in James 4, and in 1 Peter 5. So in conclusion, the Apostles' Creed is a statement of beliefs that encompasses the gospel, which is the fact that Jesus Christ came was without sin and thereby was the only one worthy to be sacrificed to pay for our sin. The Apostles' Creed declares that the Son of God was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Those who hold to this creed declare that Jesus is their Lord. 
A Lord is defined as someone who has power and authority over another. That authority comes from his Trinitarian state of being one with God and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God. God is the creator of heaven and earth and all that dwell within it. That power comes from the Holy Spirit that indwells those who have come to a place in their life where they realize that they can't save themselves. They can't work their way to the required level of righteousness and that they need a Savior and that they need that Savior is Jesus Christ. Salvation for eternity can only be accomplished by a sacrifice for sin that God finds acceptable. That sacrifice must be perfect, sinless, righteous sacrifice. Anything tainted, spotted, or less than perfect will not do. And since all people born of man and woman inherit the original venom of sin, there was no sinless person on earth. The only way a sinless person could be born was if God himself was the Father. The incarnation of Jesus Christ was just that. God the Father, through the Holy Spirit, overshadowed the Virgin Mary and she became pregnant without having any physical relationship with man. If the incarnation did not happen, that would mean that Jesus was not the incarnate deity that he is and the cornerstone of the gospel. It would mean that he was just a man and not God. If the incarnation did not happen, Mary would have stopped it in its tracks because she could not have let a lie cover up her shame, resulting in the horror that took place before her very eyes. If Jesus was not God in human flesh, he would not have risen from the dead three days later. We know this happened because of the overwhelming historical evidence of the circumstances of the tomb. Professional Roman guards patrolling the grounds and eyewitnesses who were alive during the writing of the Gospels solidify the truth of the resurrection. The incarnation, the fact that Jesus, God, came to earth in human form to lead a sinless life, to teach man how to treat each other, how to pray to God, how to view others greater than self, and then to die on a cross for your sins and mine. The incarnation was a critical, necessary, indispensable event that God planned for our good and for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your Son, who you sent, is our Lord. Sinless, perfect, humble, obedient to you, yet God. He came in flesh to bear our sins, to be our atonement. Father, we just ask that we would be drawing closer to you as we consider the sacrifice and the truth of these words and your word. Father, we thank you for, for bringing us together today. We thank you for uh, bringing your word. And I thank you for this, this week spent in immersed in, in this myself, Lord, that you would transform me, that you would grow me, Lord, into, into someone that you want, that someone who is closer and growing more like your son. And I, I, I look forward to the time in glory, Lord, when, when we can commune with the other saints, with your son, with John the Baptist, with, with Abraham and Moses, Lord. What a, what a wonderful um, ba banquet that will be, Lord. Thank you for your son, Jesus, in his name. Amen.